It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today with us, George Jage. He is the founder of Jage Media. George, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks so much for having me back on, Josh. Thanks for coming out to uh, MJ Unpacked this last October. We really appreciate seeing you. Yeah, it's a good time, man. I appreciate that as well. Um, I wanted to talk to you because there was a recent acquisition of MJ BizCon for $120 million uh, all cash, which is kind of rare for the industry. There's a lot of these these all stock deals, whatever, but being all cash is pretty unique. So I kind of wanted to get your take on it, being that you were involved with them. Maybe you can kind of tell the audience a little bit about your involvement with MJ BizCon and your take of this uh, this acquisition. Yeah, uh, super exciting for you know I think some some people, and uh, you know it's it's obviously a big deal in the industry. Um, MJ Biz Daily and MJ BizCon have certainly been a, a stalwart of news and information and events for the cannabis community. Uh, my involvement goes back when I took over as the president of the company back in 2014. Um, they had been producing some very small events like tabletops outside of a racetrack up here in the Seattle area. They did one at a Masonic Lodge in Colorado. And it was, you know, wasn't at a time that anybody was really op- flying their doors open for a convention space to host a cannabis event anyways. Um, but yes, I took that company and scaled it from that 20 tabletops into, you know, a thousand plus blue show over the Las Vegas Convention Center and got them on a really good trajectory moving forward. And, you know, at that time when, you know, I was involved in the business, you know, I think a lot of the industry is very new. Um, we had a lot of licensed, you know, people getting licensed in Colorado, Washington, Oregon, you know, legalizing and, and moving towards licensure as well as other states in California. Um, you know, the industry needed, you know, the the supply side of the industry to stand up their license. They needed extraction equipment. They needed light bulbs. They needed trays. They needed machines in the corner that go bing, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, it was it was easier to be able to get that space and, and into a professional convention um, in, in Las Vegas, um, being that it was non-plant touching businesses, supply side, uh, suppliers in the industry that were, you know, really fueling the growth of that event. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you kind of helped start all this thing. You have since started MJ Unpack, which is a little bit more focused on investors, brands, and retailers. You saw an opportunity. That's when you kind of decided maybe, I don't know, that's why you decided to leave uh, MJ BizCon and and that whole organization, but very successful start, your your first one, and now you're doing multiple cities, kind of doing your own thing. From that viewpoint, tell me a little bit about how you kind of saw this acquisition uh, and yeah, maybe a little bit more about uh, MJ. Sure. I, I left back in 2017, um, I had an executive divorce with the owners. Um, that's in the past and not, not the present. Um, uh, listen, I mean, like, like I said, very successful show. I'm very proud of what work I did over there to really help shape and create the, the business and the success of that event. Um, it was the fastest growing event in the entire United States, the two year, two of the three years that I ran it. Um, but, you know, when you're looking at the, this, the trade show acquisition model and, um, you know, there's always going to be publicly traded or, you know, there's there's kind of the big strategic buyers in the space. Emerald Exhibitions being one of them, you know, Tarsus PLC, Informa, um, Reed Exhibitions, uh, Clarion Events. Um, so there's a lot of these big companies. And because, you know, with the trade show model, typically once you start scaling it up, 
you know, you're selling the exhibit space, you're getting your exhibitor deposits and your sponsorship money much further upstream than you would be spending your money to actually produce the event. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of cash flow for those businesses. And as these kind of larger companies, you know, they acquire these assets, they're bringing in that cash flow and they can lever that up and really continue to um, acquire more assets. It's not dissimilar to what MSOs are doing, obviously, in the cannabis space, that they're going to continue to acquire profitable businesses in the space that they can then put into their infrastructure and create some economies of scale and operational efficiencies to, you know, have them become more profitable under their stewardship than they would independently. Um, you know, MJ Biz and MJ BizCon, I mean, that was obviously a very, you know, niche specific, you know, company that was focused specifically on this cannabis industry. So, you know, Emerald provides, you know, certainly some resources for them to um, expand what they're doing. Um, we'll see how that goes. Um, but breaking down the deal, um, you know, trade shows have traditionally sold, um, you know, over the last 20, 30 years between, you know, eight and 12 times uh, two-year trailing EBITDA multiples. Um, what's interesting about this deal is obviously is when they factored this in, they were, weren't looking, they kind of basically put a hall pass on 2020. Um, everybody in the events business, you know, pretty much, you know, had to, kind of either shut down operations or try to move to virtual, which was, you know, a fraction of the revenue potential that a live event would have. Um, and, you know, so looking at it, it's a 9.2 multiple on EBITDA of current year EBITDA of, this, you know, estimating the $17 million, all publicly available information, the 8K filing from Emerald Exhibitions, including the asset purchase agreement. And, um, you know, then there's a 30 to $50 million earnout that's based on, you know, more or less incremental revenue um, in the year ahead. Um, so that's payable in 2023, which means it's really based on any type of, of net increase in, in the current year. Now, the increase that they're looking at um, to achieve a 30 to $50 million EBITDA multiple or earnout, additional earnout payment, it's pretty significant if you start doing the math on it. Um, and I presume that they probably, while they, the, the, the public filings stated that they were relatively on par with their 2019 show, um, they did put in the AK that they had, I think, 27,000 attendees at the event in 2021. And on their website, they said they had 35,000 in 2019. So, you know, there's obviously, um, you know, decline in attendance. Some people could, you know, lay that on top of a COVID blanket, but Mm -hmm. You know, again, I just think that the market and this gets into what we're doing. Um, there's been a significant paradigm shift. I don't think that the supply side model that's pretty much been replicated. There's there's NCIA, Canacon, almost every one of these shows that is out there, CWCBE, you know, majority of the exhibitors, if not all of the exhibitors are suppliers um, selling equipment, picks and shovels. Right. I looked at MJ Business floor plan. They have one out of 1200 companies that was actually a CPG THC brand that exhibited with them in 2021. And I see that the market is going, um, you know, where the market's going and where we're playing to is that cannabis is a CPG industry, um, that the brands and the retailers are on the forefront and the vanguard of winning over our consumers by creating a safe, educational, and transparent retail experience. And then the brands having a trusted, safe, tested product that creates an experience for those consumers. Um, that's how we get new people entering the market. They got to go somewhere to buy it, right? And try it for the first time. Um, and if you look at any other CPG industry, the biggest and usually the most important show is focused around brands and retailers. And that's what our event's doing on a national level. There's just not a national CPG market yet. 
Can I ask you to speculate on the cause for the sale? Was it spurred by COVID? Did they kind of see that there was a peak and that it was going to take a few years to bounce back to their all-time highs? So like, we better get out now. What what well, is your personal? I, I think I, yeah. I mean, you know, I listen. I obviously know all the players that are involved in this um, from the MJ Biz side. Um, you know, I think that the owners, you know, intention was that they wanted to build an asset and sell it. Um, and who has been involved in other businesses has, you know, built them up and exited them when it got to a point where either it was, you know, ridiculously profitable or, you know, exiting was the best next step for the business. Um, so I think that, that they've always kind of looked at it saying, hey, this is an asset. We're going to build it up and we're going to eventually exit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think that, um, you know it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, because there's this very large overhang of the earnout that's, you know, part of the cash payment on this, you know, I've built and sold and exited trade show assets in the past. And, you know, earnouts are usually a little tricky. Um, they usually aren't fully achieved. Um, but, you know, the idea behind it is that the owners, uh, the sellers still have some operational influence or control over the business to make sure that there aren't any material changes into the business operations moving forward. Um, usually the buyer has some restrictions saying you can't just gut your marketing budgets. You can't gut these budgets so that you increase earnout over that next year. But I mean, at the end of the day, um, there's going to be a tremendous amount of pressure to increase revenues and decrease costs, right? That's how you maximize your earnout. If that's what their primary goal is of exiting this business in the current year. Um, you know, so making sure that, you know, that the product is still, you know, being delivered at the level that it's expected to will be important, I think, for a lot of people in this industry. Um, you know, and, you know, how is, you know, how is this going to change the dynamics? You know, I, you know, I, I think that some of these, some of the other shows that have been happening in the industry that have come back in 2021 have really struggled. Hmm. I think attendance has been down in almost every, every one of these events. Um, and part of it is, is, you know, are they going to network with people? And if they are, who are they networking with? Mm. Is it a relevant, is it a, a, a qualified audience? Or are they just going to an event where there's, you know, um, you know, 30,000 unqualified, you know, attendees of the event that, that may or may not be relevant to you. So I think people, and there's just a general paradigm shift, both moving towards brands and retail focus. That's where our market lives and breathes. Um, cultivation is obviously a part of that. And I kind of group cultivators as, as being a brand. Um, as soon as they, you know, grow their flower and they, they put their brand, their, their family farm name on it. Um, that's a, a CPG consumer brand, right? I'm mm -hmm. building a relationship with that grower, not necessarily that strain. Um, so I, I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll see, right. Um, you know, um, this, there's been a lot of acquisitions that have been happening in our industry. Um, sometimes it's, you know, uh, a necessity. Sometimes it's an opportunity to cash out, um, you know, the retail and the, the licensed operators in this business. I mean, that's a very tough business model, um, you know, changing regulations, 280 tax code, um, you know. I mean, I saw on the 8K, I mean, you know, MJ Biz, if they had a $17 million profit in 2019, they, they still took two, you know, two PPP loans that, you know, amounted to more than $2 million. And I, I think about all of the cannabis companies that didn't have access to those PPP loans to keep themselves alive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How are companies, uh, trade show companies going to stay alive? Because Canacon started in Seattle and is kind of um, non-existent. They're only being able to survive in places like um, Oklahoma. You know, um, the last time Canacon was held in Seattle, I went to Canada and went to Lyft. I didn't even bother. Yeah. 
And so I'm curious how you plan on, on uh, surviving with MJ Impact and how companies like Canacon will pivot to stay relevant, or do you think they will? I, I, I can't speculate whether they will or will not and what their, what their team and their leadership team is doing, but I can tell you what we're doing. We're very simply listening to the consumer or to our customers and our clients and taking the time to understand the needs of the market at the moment. Um, you know, when we launch this, again, we're launching a national consumer packaged goods style show for an industry that doesn't have a national market. Mm-hmm. So the need sets for a brand coming from Washington, you know, they're not looking to come to an event of foreign market to meet with retailers back in their own, own home state market. They're already effectively doing that. What these brands need to recognize and what they do recognize is they need access to capital. Um, there's still, you know, tremendous restrictions and, 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 and availability of cash for these licensed operators in the space. Um, they need to meet with retailers from other markets so they can figure out if they expand their footprint, what markets they should be going into and whether or not they need to adjust their brand strategy. And they need to meet with other producer processors from other state markets to find partnerships. Like if I, if I had a, a, a brand here in Washington um, and I wanted to start expanding into multiple states, it's not going to be the best use of capital for me to go acquire a license. I might end up spending a million dollars to get and then have to spend millions of dollars setting up ultimately a completely separate business operation in another state to produce some type of edible flour or any type of other consumer packaged goods. That's just not efficient. But if I can find somebody that's very like me, that's in Oregon and say, hey, I want you to manufacture my product. I'm going to manufacture your product. We'll push these both out on the sales teams. We'll have some type of royalty agreement. That's where that market growth is coming. And we all know that there, that there is huge amounts of interest by the tobacco and the alcohol industries alone, not to mention other CPG industries that are looking to get into this space. And they are incredibly well capitalized. They have tremendous operational efficiencies and they're going to be a tsunami that's going to come in and disrupt and try to dominate the cannabis industry. Um, and that's, the way you know the capital markets work. The one thing that's holding them back is that federal legalization. So we have a short period of time. We don't know if it's going to be you know six months or six years, but federal legalization is going to happen. And if the brands that are in the marketplace now that have put the blood, sweat, and tears that are authentic, that are legacy, have the opportunity to establish themselves regionally or nationally now, they have a good fighting chance of creating that type of generational wealth that you see with Seagram's or Bacardi or Anheuser-Busch families, right? Um, And why shouldn't that be somebody from the cannabis industry? I don't think it should be somebody necessarily from alcohol or tobacco or even pharmaceutical industry, because if anything, if we know anything, we need a new set of, of thought leadership. We need new thought leadership when we're managing an industry that has the potential to be as transformative as cannabis, in our society, the amount of harm reduction it can cause, the medicine, medical value of it. Um, I just think that if we turn this over and let, let existing vice industries that have you know, boiled this down to how do I get people addicted to my product and sell them more is going to be a mistake for, for cannabis as a plant. All right, George. That's, last- all got, that's all I got to say about that. I'm a little passionate about it. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm, uh, so last question, I'm curious how Emerald, the Emerald Conference was able to acquire uh, MJ BizCon for $120 million. I went, uh, so long story short, um, when I tried to start the Seattle Super Chronic Cafe, that felony in Washington State hit, 
and I had to pivot to stay relevant. So I did catering and event planning. So I worked with Cliff Robinson and I did an event at the Moda Center in Portland for Blazers versus Nugs. And we had our own private event and everything, which was really cool to have for, for the NBA to allow, well, not NBA, but yeah. the, the Moda Center to allow us to have cannabis and cannabis events there. That was going to translate into a golfing tournaments, which you've seen kind of proliferate now. Sure. And, and yep. I was looking at starting a, a science conference that has since started and is doing okay. Yeah. And I wanted to have athletes with doctors on a panel, normalizing the whole thing. You've kind of, all of that is normalized now. So in January of 2016, I went down to Vegas to the Emerald conference to grab, you know, some, some vendors and whatnot. And I was shocked to say the least when there was six booths there. So how was it that the Emerald conference that MJ biz owns, right? Yeah. yeah, and they they bought they bought that Emerald Conference and and listen, I think you know timing wise they they acquired that I think late in 2019 pre pandemic they thought that they could kind of use this as a gateway into kind of expanding their reach into the scientific community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly Josh um, uh, that runs the Cannabis Science Conference that's going to be down in Long Beach um, is also a really good event in that space. Mm-hmm. And the science and the technology in the space is, is going to be really important. I think that you're going to start seeing that come more mainstream because of the innovation, because of the technologies that we're using to really improve the consumer experience in cannabis. Um, but going back to your first question is, you know, how does somebody like this sell, sell a business like this? So um, there's, a, there's an organization in the, called SISO, Society of Independent Show Organizers. I've been uh, on the board of directors there, um, been in the trade show industry for 30 years, been going to that event for 25. Um, and, you know, I brought some of the, the ownership of MJ Biz to that event um, prior to my departure. Um, but, you know, that's basically kind of that that very kind of exclusive club where you have the big players in the room, the strategic buyers, and then you have the independents and they, you know, you go around and you let people know you're looking to sell. And I believe if, um, you know, uh, from sources, um, third party sources that they basically create a bidding process for their event. Uh, amongst some of the larger strategic buyers, um, you know, and private equity has always been a big player in the trade show space as well, because, you know, when you look at the success of trade shows, you know, you're, you know, once you've kind of established those core costs, building out registration and, and, and venues and hotel blocks and, and all of the different elements that go into the show and you start building that scale, they become very profitable. Um, you have very high renewal rates with tech. Le- so you have this kind of tech like performance that private equity likes of, you know, 80% renewal rate, 70% profit margins, right? Um, and that's really only when you get to that, that, that level scale. Um, so they become very transactionable assets. Uh, that conference was really, really small. And um, if it wasn't in Vegas, I would have been incredibly bored. Uh, can you tell the audience, because you're going to be in Vegas for MJ Impact in September, and then you're expanding uh, into other areas. Um, tell us a little bit about how you plan on not becoming uh, the Emerald Conference, which is really small and almost irrelevant. How are you going to grow? Is it just a matter of going to other cities? Where are you going to be at? How can people find you? All that good stuff. Sure. Um, you know, you know, first and foremost, going back to, to the, you know, we had some time during the pandemic. Like we, we always knew that, that the, the, the biggest show in the end game in this industry exists in the future, but doesn't exist today. So what we're doing is we're basically positioning ourselves to manifest it. And it's also that we want to steward it responsibly. Like we don't want to be in a position where we're selling 
a hundred packaging companies boost space mm-hmm. and, and knowing damn well that there's not going to be enough buyers coming into the space for them to have a successful ROI. So we, we're very curated. Um, we qualify everybody who comes to our show that they are a CPG brand or retail executive with the title of manager hire. Retail and vertical operators can attend our conference for free. We want to support the industry and help it move forward. Um, you know, so, you know, by again, listening to our customers, like what are the things that people don't like going to these big shows? Either they're, they're not well marketed and organized and they're too small. So you kind of felt like you wasted your time at the Emerald Conference um, or they're too big and overwhelming and you're not sure where to start or where you're going to end. We also don't feel that, you know, business doesn't get done by scanning a badge, walking down an aisle anymore. Um, you know, the, the rule of thumb in the trade show industry is 80% of trade show leads aren't followed up on. But, you know, if you start with having an unqualified audience, then even if you do follow up on them, you're going to have a very low conversion rate. What we believe creates success is that when we have a chance to sit down and have a conversation with somebody by bringing the right people in the room so that everybody more or less is going to be relevant to at your level, they're a decision maker, and then providing that space for them to have conversations, to understand each other's needs and opportunities. That's what drives transactional success. And that's how we're trying to build really, I don't want to say a better mousetrap because we're not trying to kill any mice, uh, but really a better solution that delivers and focuses on return on objectives, return on investment and return on experience and not just, you know, sell another booth, sell another ticket. We want to be able to understand our customers' needs. We have a very consultative approach and how we can make them be successful. We want to have a customer that's going to be with us for, you know, the next 10, 20 years. So um, I have uh, my business partner is also my wife. Um, She ran World T Media and World T Expo with me for 12 years. Um, She's a brilliant marketer. Um, We've got some great partners um, in our, you know, between PR and, um, you know, some of our digital marketing partners. Um, We've got a phenomenal team of people that are incredibly passionate about what we're doing. And we're actually doubling the size of our company right now and and bringing on another six people here this year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of that process is, is really evaluating, you know, where they're kind of you know, motivators are, are they motivated by, by actually having a high social impact and, 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 and helping people. And that's important to us as an organization. See, I, I may, I give a little shout out here for last prisoner project. Um, I'm going to be talking to Mary Bailey a little bit later today. And, you know, this is where, you know, I think media, um, you, me, and everybody else, we have an opportunity to really support the hero work that's happening because this is an industry with a lot of problems. Um, we know California has got, you know, big problems with taxation and, and other, you know, supply side issues, um, you know, having some social justice and, um, you know, uh, justice reform, uh, criminal justice reform are really paramount to what we're doing. And I think the next big wave is that we have to create a path for the legacy operators in the cannabis space who, you know, previously, you know, couldn't report their tax, their earnings and pay taxes on it. They had to operate outside the law. How do we, how do we make sure that those people have a seat at the table if we have a legal regulated and tax market? And if we don't do that, then we've done a, a severe injustice to the people who actually got us here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Tommy Chong did a nice little um, shout out in, in Vegas to the last prisoner project uh, at MJ Unpacked. Yeah, actually, we uh, we arranged there was a, a, a somebody that was in prison and uh, Mary Bailey um, arranged so that he's a huge Tommy Chong fan and arranged for Tommy to call him or for him to call out of prison because he can't doesn't have a phone in his cell, mm-hmm. um, you know, at a specific time so that he could talk to Tommy Chong at our event. And it, I mean, it's just that's the stuff that just, you know, 
makes my heart, you know, fill up is just, you know, being able to see it like, and, and, you know, Tom, Tommy's just a regular guy, man. He's, mm-hmm. he's legit. I mean, he's been a pioneer and a, a, you know, an OG in the space, you know, but man, I mean, how did he make that guy feel that day? Like that he got to make a call from prison and talk to Tommy Chong and, and that there's people on the outside that care about why he's in prison and are trying to get him out because he didn't commit a crime. Um, you know, to an extent he's being held hostage, um, uh, for using plant-based medicine. Mm-hmm. All right. It was good. Um, yeah. Last prisoner project. Um, where, where are they at? Where are you guys at? How can people get a, uh, get some more information on all of that? Sure. Um, yeah, listen, um, uh, you can go to last prisoners website. You can text to make donations. Um, our main website is MJ unpacked. Uh, our next event will be in New York. May 4th, 5th, and 6th. And if you do come out to our event and qualify, um, we on, on May 7th, there's actually the Cannabis Parade and Rally that Steve Bloom and others in New York produce every year. I'm hoping that our um, our network and our community that are coming to our show can stay over and help support that movement. Um, yes, they have legalized marijuana in New York, but you know we can't ever rest and say that it's, it's gonna be okay. We gotta make sure our voices are heard. Um, we also have a, a publication, mjbrandinsights.com that people can get great, relevant, actionable intelligence. Um, we've got some great stories, talk about brands, um, got some real industry experts that made some predictions in 2022 that are worth reading. And uh, we would uh, love to uh, continue to be of service to the industry. And we'll put the link to um, MJ Brand Insights into the show notes, as well as George's uh, contact on LinkedIn for anybody that wants to get a hold of him. But I think with that, we're going to have to roll this one up. So I want to thank my guest, George Jage. He is the founder of Jage Media and MJ Impact. George, thanks for being with us on The Talking Hedge. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. With that, we're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Or don't. And I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms Podcast. I started the Pop Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.